About five and a half years ago, uh, I went to a pastor's conference. It was a good conference, uh, about a week long. And after that, I, came, I was coming back that day. I, I had finished the conference about noon, got on a plane, flew from Minneapolis to Phoenix, had a pretty long layover. And then finally, at about eight o'clock in the evening, I got on a plane from Phoenix, flying back home to LA. I was, I, I'd had a good week, but I was tired. I was ready to get back to my family, ready to sleep in my own bed. And so I, I sat down in this seat, and, and I would like to say that, that I'm always spiritually sensitive, that I'm always like alert to, to opportunities God brings my way, but that's not the case, uh, unfortunately. I want to be that way, but like many of you, I, I have moments when I'm just very inward focused, and so I was sitting in my seat, just didn't really want to talk to anybody, you know, just put in my, put in my headphones, I just want to listen to music, just want to kind of zone out for the next two hours until I get back to L.A., but the guy sitting next to me didn't, have, didn't share my, my opinion, my feeling. Uh, very extroverted guy, and so he, he wanted, to, uh, wanted to make some conversation. So he asked me, hey, what do you do? And so that's an interesting question. Uh, usually it goes one of three ways when I answer. I'm a pastor. People will generally either, they'll, they'll open their eyes and kind of go, you know, kind of look back at what they're reading, or they'll, their eyes will get real wide and they'll say, why would you want to do that? Because usually they think it involves like celibacy or something. Or, uh, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not a priest. Or, or the third option is that they'll tell me their life story. And so that was this guy. He was the third, the third camp here. And so he just kind of began to share his life story with me. He, he grew up in Saudi Arabia, was a Muslim, raised Muslim, uh, moved to the United States with his wife. And after living here for a while, he became an atheist. And so his family disowned him. And that was naturally creating some tension in his marriage because his wife was still a Muslim. And so he's just sharing this with me. It was an interesting story. It had my attention. But uh, he is really extroverted. So he's just, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant trying to listen to this guy. He's just pouring details and too many details, like way too many details. And just, I'm just trying to keep up. And finally, in the midst of this, you know, this, this flowing of, of words, he, he stops and he looks at me and he says, Okay, with one verse from the Bible, summarize Christianity. Oh, man. It's been a long day. I'm tired. I'm, I'm just trying to keep up with this guy. And now I've got to summarize Christianity in one verse. And to make matters worse, uh, this guy's talking really loud. And so all the people around us can hear him. And so, yeah. And so the, 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 there's this uh, guy behind us. He's an Indian guy. He has this, this turban thing on. And so he then leans up over the seat to look at me like, wow, what's this guy going to say? And in the front, in front of us, there's this businesswoman. She did the same thing. She's like looking over like, wow, this is interesting. And they did the same thing later when he asked me about hell. So I, I won't get into that today. But you can imagine, this is, a, this is a tense conversation here. And so I'm thinking, and like many of you, I've had some, some training in evangelism. And so, I, you know, I've learned verses, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against. I'm trying to think of verses, but I can't. I can't think of anything. My mind's blank. I'm a professional, right? I should be able to do this. I'm struggling, and finally this verse comes. I can't even think of the reference, but I, I remember the verse, repent and believe the good news. It's Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news. And some of you may think that's a pretty strange verse to use for evangelism, for summarizing the, the gospel, but that's what I use. And so today, we're going to look at why I suggested that verse and how I explained it to this guy. So turn in your Bibles with me to our passage uh, Mark chapter 1, 
verse 14. Mark 1, 14. And as you're turning there, I want to give a quick recap on where we've been. We're doing a sermon series we're calling Next Steps. We're looking at, we've been doing this since Easter, so we're saying once you're interested in becoming a disciple, what are the phases, what are the stages of discipleship that we see in Scripture? How did, especially in the Gospels, how did Jesus bring along his disciples? What, do, what, what are some natural uh, stages that we see? And the first stage that we saw is the come and see phase. The phase where John the Baptist introduces a couple guys to Jesus, and they're interested in him, and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? We want to hang out with you. And Jesus says, come and see. Come hang out with me. So they hang out all day. They become friends. They go on a road trip together. They go to a week-long wedding together. They see Jesus turn water into wine. They're like, wow, this guy has some supernatural power. They go on a road trip down to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover together. They see Jesus get really ticked off in the temple. They're like, wow, this guy gets really upset over injustice. And then Jesus kind of takes them on like a short-term mission trip. They go out into the Judean wilderness. Jesus is teaching. They begin to baptize people, young guys, newbies, who are already being called by Jesus to baptize um, in, even as a prospective disciple. And then Jesus decides to go up to Galilee, and so they pass through Samaria, and they see Jesus sharing the gospel to a Samaritan woman. And they say, wow, this guy is like, he's going beyond just the, the racial and the ethnic cultural boundaries that we're used to. And so they're, they're seeing all this, this new stuff about Jesus. They're getting this, this big, broad view of who Jesus is. But today, uh, that stage is we're going to go to the second stage. We're going to shift now from the come and see phase to something else. So, Mark chapter 1, beginning in 14. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. So, we know that John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus, on his little short-term mission trip, him and his disciples go and he teaches and they baptize. And it's the same thing, similar vicinity. They're, they're close to John the Baptist. And so, a lot of the people that are going to John the Baptist begin to go to Jesus. And so, John the Baptist's disciples begin to complain about this. Um, but eventually, John the Baptist gets arrested by Herod. Uh, John is, is you know, he's, he's pretty blunt. He doesn't really, you know, he's not real politically correct. And so Herod had convinced his brother's wife to divorce his brother and marry him. And so uh, John the Baptist is like, no, that's, that's naughty. You can't do that. That's bad. And Herod, especially Herod's wife, gets upset about that. And so he ends up getting arrested by Herod. And so Jesus senses things politically are getting pretty hot here. John is in jail. His disciples are jealous. And also in Jerusalem, the 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 religious leaders in the temple are noticing Jesus. They're noticing his movement. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm not ready to, to die yet. I still have some ministry to do. And so he heads up to Galilee. He leaves that area, leaves Judea, goes up north, passes through Samaria, talks to the Samaritan woman, and eventually they get back to Galilee. And what I, what I, I think we see from this passage, and we're going to see in a little bit, is that the disciples, once they get there, they go back home. They've been away for a while from their home. They've been traveling around with Jesus. It's like a short-term mission trip for a couple weeks, a month. We don't know how long. But they get back home. They're anxious to tell their family about Jesus. They, they get back to their jobs. They just kind of get back to their old routine. They still believe in Jesus. They still probably believe he's the Messiah. But they, they just kind of fit back into normal, everyday life again. But in the midst of that, Jesus continues to teach. So verse 15, he says, The time has Come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. I think 
for Jesus' audience, they would have understood that as the Messiah is here. The time has come. That's the time that they've been waiting for since, you know, since the prophets. They've been waiting for the Messiah to come. John the Baptist says he's almost here. The time is almost here. Get your hearts ready. And so they've been preparing. The Messiah is coming. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, the time is here, to them that means the Messiah is here. Jesus is essentially saying, he's coming out and saying, I'm the guy. The Messiah is here. The time is here, he said. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is God's direct rule and reign in the hearts of his people and over his world. We know that God is sovereign over all things. God is, is ultimately, he is the king of the world. And so all things that happen are ultimately working according to his plan. He's bringing good out of evil. He's working indirectly through, through us and through people who, even who, who do not um, swear allegiance to him, who do not love him. But someday God is going to rule directly. He's going, Christ will return. God's kingdom will come directly on earth and it will reign. And when that happens, there, there will be perfect justice. Perfect justice. No evil. There's no room for evil in God's kingdom when he rules directly. And so Jesus says, repent. Repent. You have evil in your heart. You've turned away from God. Repent. Turn back to God. Change your mind about the right way to live. Repent. Because when his kingdom comes, there's no room for evil. But in God's kingdom, there's also perfect joy. Perfect joy because there's no evil to harm our joy. And so Jesus says that's good news. Repent and believe the good news. A kingdom of perfect justice and perfect joy. I was trying to think of a metaphor that, that would have been good and also faithful to how Jesus has disciples and original audience would have understood this. And I think uh, this is the metaphor that I came up with that I think probably fits with what Jesus is going for. Imagine in the ancient world, uh, often you would have a powerful king and a powerful kingdom, a big empire, like Rome, maybe the emperor, or in Persia or Babylon, you'd have this powerful king, powerful kingdom. But what often would happen is one of the cities in the kingdom would rebel against that king. They'd say, hey, we don't want to serve this king anymore. We don't want to be under his authority. We don't want to obey his laws. We're going to rebel. And so imagine that has happened. There's this good, powerful king, big, powerful kingdom, but one of his cities has rebelled against him. They said, we're, you know, forget you. We're going to do our own thing. And that city becomes an evil place, a place where people do not obey the king's good laws. They do what they want. It's evil. There's all kinds of problems there. And so the king marches out with his army. He marches out with this powerful army to put down this rebellion and to destroy the city. And there's no question about who's going to win because the king is really powerful. His army is really huge. There's no way this city can resist him. But the king is also merciful. And so before he arrives, his, his army is on the way. They're approaching. They're almost there. But before he gets there to destroy the city, he sends ahead a messenger with terms of peace. The king doesn't have to do that. There's no way the city can resist him, but he, he is merciful. He wants to be reconciled to that city. And so he sends a messenger ahead who says, look, if you will lay down your arms, and if you will repent of your rebellion, the king will completely pardon you. He will completely welcome you back as full citizens in his kingdom. There's no, uh, there, there's no phase where you have to prove your loyalty. He will completely welcome you back. No strings attached. And that's our story. That's what Jesus is getting at. 
God is the great creator. He is the great king who made us to live in his good kingdom. But we have rebelled. We have rejected his authority. We have rebelled against him. We have stuck up our middle finger at him and said, F you, God. I know that's very offensive. I want you to get the sense of what our, the nature of our rebellion against God. That's what it really is like. That's how bad it is to him. Even worse. That's the inclination of every human heart since Adam fell. We want to be autonomous. Deep down, we are proud and we are self-centered and we want to run our own lives without God's interference. We want our own way and ultimately, we don't care who we have to step on to get it. There's a really good book I encourage you to read. It's called Shantung Compound. It's about a group of foreigners living, living in China in the 1930s. And the author, he went to China in the, in the 1930s. He was, a, he was American, very, very, um, very liberal guy, believed uh, human beings are, are, are good. We just need a little more education. And so he went there to teach. But what happened is when the, when the Japanese invaded, they put all the foreigners in this compound, Shantung Compound. And there were, there were missionaries in there, there were teachers, there were bureaucrats, you know, all kinds of different people from different walks of life in this compound. And it was like a prison, but inside of it, the foreigners could govern themselves. The Japanese said, hey, you guys can govern yourselves inside this compound. And so for this guy, he was excited because he's like, hey, we're going to create utopia, right? This is it. We get this opportunity to create this new society, good society. But what he found out is, ultimately, at the end of the day, everybody wants what's best for them. And they look out for themselves. They look out for their family over other families. And then within families, ultimately, even within families, everybody wants what's good for themselves individually. And so this, this ideal utopia ended up becoming worse and worse. It was a, he said it was self-destructing. And the only person in this group who was different, he said, was a guy named Eric Little. If you've seen Chariots of Fire, Eric is the Christian who, who won the Olympics, but he wouldn't run on Sunday. He's a fast runner. He, after that, he became a missionary to China. And so he got put in that compound, and he was completely different, this guy says. He, he looked after other people. He cared for other people. He just had this joy that couldn't be dimmed by circumstances. And, and this author literally says that it was Eric Little who kept that, that compound from self-destructing until he finally died of a, of a brain tumor. It's a powerful story, but I think it gets at who we are by nature. And we as humans don't desire, truly, wholeheartedly, we don't desire to seek the true God in order to worship Him. We would rather worship ourselves and other things, other gods that make us feel comfortable. And therefore, we are sinful and evil. It's not just that we do some evil things and we're basically good. We are evil. Yes, the Bible says God made us in His image. Uh, we, we, we're self-conscious. We know right and wrong. We do have some good desires. But since the fall, since human fallenness, our evil desires are mixed into everything we do. And in our natural, sinful state, those evil desires dominate us. They control us. And so God has every right to judge and punish evil. Imagine somebody who's evil. God has every right to judge them. But first, he has come to us with terms of peace. A way for our evil to be punished without us having to be destroyed. A way for us to be reconciled to him. Welcomed back as full citizens in his kingdom. A place of perfect and everlasting joy. 
That is the good news of God. And if you believe it, then you repent. You surrender to God. God's messenger comes and He says, surrender, turn back to to your rightful king. And if you believe it, you do so. You surrender. You turn to God in Jesus Christ. You don't do anything to earn His mercy. You simply receive it by embracing Jesus as your rightful king. And if you have surrendered to Jesus as your king, as your savior, then you will follow Him. You will obey Him. Turn with me, or keep reading with me in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So again, Jesus has been spending time with these guys. They're potential disciples. They're interested in him. And so they've been spending time together. They've been, they've been learning about who he is and what he's about. But now he's calling them to commit. To commit. And he is the one calling them. That's interesting. See, students at this time, Jewish boys at this time who want to become rabbis, The way they would go about that is that they would pick a rabbi that they want to study under. And they would go to that rabbi and they would say, they would say, Rabbi Hillel, for example. Rabbi Hillel, I want to study under you. I want to become your apprentice. I want to become your disciple. So someday I can be a rabbi like you. And so Rabbi Hillel would test them to see if they're qualified. And he'd say, okay, son, you know, tell me about Torah. And he would, he, would start, he would start asking them various verses and asking them to quote these verses. Because he wants to see, can, do they have Torah, the Old Testament, do they have it memorized? Because if they can't memorize the Old Testament, how are they going to memorize the rabbi's words? There's a saying at this time that a good disciple doesn't let one word of his rabbi fall to the ground. He catches every word. He memorizes every word. And so the rabbi wants to see, can this boy memorize what I'm saying? But then after asking questions like that, he begins to ask the boy questions about Torah. Can he teach the Torah? Can he explain the Torah? Not just can he memorize it, but now can he explain it? To people, Because the rabbi wants to see, will this boy not only memorize my teachings, but will he be able to pass them on? Will he be able to explain them to other people? And then finally, the rabbi begins to ask him questions about his life. He wants to see, can, will this boy, is he moral enough? Does he have strong enough character to emulate my lifestyle? Can he become like I am? Can he be like me? And so he'll ask questions and then he'll finally say one of two things. He'll say, you know, congratulations, my son, you, you can become my, my disciple. You may apprentice under me. Or he may say, my son, you know, um, it's obvious that you love Torah, that you're a good Jewish boy, but you just don't have what it takes. I'm sorry. Go home, raise good, many good Jewish children, but, uh, but you don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. That's how it was typically done. But here in this passage, Jesus picks his disciples and he doesn't test them to see if they're qualified. He doesn't start yelling at Peter, Peter, quote Leviticus 19.18, right? And Peter's like, what? I'm, I'm fishing, man. I don't, you know, he's, he's this crude fisherman. He's not real bright. I mean, if, if you're looking for somebody qualified, Peter's not the guy. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But Jesus says, I, don't, I know that you're not qualified. But if you follow me, I will make you qualified. 
I will enable you to do what I'm doing. I will make you, and the Greek kind of misses this in the IV, but I will make you to become fishers of men. Not I will make you instantaneously, but I will make you to become a fisher of men, just like I am. So follow me, and I'll do the rest. But they have to choose. They can't stay in this come and see phase forever. They can't just follow Jesus when it's convenient. When, when they have a little time off work, when, they're, when, they're, when their kids are put to bed, now they're going to run out after Jesus. They've reached a point where they have to be all in to move forward. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, okay guys, you've been in the come and see phase, but if you want to follow me now, it's all in. You have to be committed. If you want to be my disciple, you have to follow. And it was a serious decision. Like I said, some Jews did follow rabbis for extended periods of time. It was a, it was a 24-7 apprenticeship for years. But it meant that they had to be away from their families and their occupations. For Peter, it means that he has to be away from his business. He's a fisherman. He has his own business. He has to be away from his wife. We know he's married. Uh, has to be away from his extended family. We know that at least his mother-in-law lives with him, which might have been actually motivation for him to follow Jesus. I don't, I don't know. And, and he had to be away from his children if he had any. We don't know if he had children. For James and John, they were younger. And some of you have been grilling me on this. You've been like pushing back a little bit. Like you don't want them to be younger, but they, I think they are. But it's good. I appreciate your comments, but I'm pretty sure. I think good evidence says that John is between 13 to 15 years old. James is a little bit older. He's the older brother. Uh, but they're helping their dad, doing the family business, fishing. And so for them to leave their father, the, father, the, the family business is doing well enough apparently to, to hire people. They have some hired men. But still, that's going to be a big blow to their dad. For them to say, hey dad, um, see you later. We've got to go follow this guy. We don't know how long, but we're going to go follow him. It was a big blow. It was a big decision. Humanly, these weren't easy decisions, especially in this culture where family is number one. Family comes first. But Jesus has given them time to think about it, and now they have to make a choice. And so they choose him. They choose him at once. That's maybe one of the more amazing things in this passage. There's no wavering. They're not like, not like you know, indecisive, like, I don't know what to do. They've seen Jesus' greatness. And their desire to be with him, to be like him, trumps all other loves, all other allegiances. The cost of commitment was high, but Jesus was worth it. And they knew that they could not be his disciples without following him. Uh, I've told this story a number of years ago, but when I was growing up, my grandfather was a farmer. And so when I became a teenager, he knew he was getting older and he was trying to decide uh, what was he going to do with a farm. He knew he couldn't farm it forever. He really wanted to keep it in the family. And uh, his, his son didn't want to be a farmer, didn't want the farm. None of his son-in-laws were interested in the farm. And so I was the oldest grandson. And so he came to me and said, hey, are you interested in becoming a farmer and, and have it, you know, farming this land? And if you're interested, I'll train you. You can apprentice under me. I'll train you. Uh, I know you don't know what you're doing. I didn't. I, I'm terrible with like my hands and mechanical stuff. He's like, I'll train you. I'll teach you. Uh, if you want the farm, I'll enable you to become a farmer. Now, part of me did. I, I liked the farm. I liked, I'm an idealistic kind of person. I like to be out on the farm. It was a beautiful farm. And so I liked living there, being there. The idea of having the farm someday appealed to me. But I'm not a, I don't like farm work, man. That's, that's not, not, not for me. It's, it's dirty, it's hot, it's, it's not very romantic. And um, see, it seems that way in your mind, but then when you actually do it, you're like, oh, this sucks. So uh, anyway, I was like, I don't want to do this. Uh, but I did want the farm, but I knew I can't have the farm without farming. And so I was smart enough to not try to have both. I wasn't like, okay, Grandpa, yeah, I accept your offer. And he'd be like, okay, on Saturday, meet me at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I'd be like, 
okay. And, and, then, and then go off to college for four years. And then after four years, come back and say, okay, Grandpa, I'm ready to have the farm. He'd be like, what are you talking about? I'd say, you offered it and I accepted it. And he'd say, that was conditional on becoming a farmer. You had to be a farmer to have the farm. You can't be a farmer without farming it. And you can't be a disciple without following Jesus. And today, some of you perhaps are in the same place as those original disciples. Jesus has given you opportunities and time to get to know him. He's allowed you to come and see what he's like. But now he's calling you to make a choice. To choose between your old life and the life of being fully committed to Jesus. If you want to be a disciple, you have to commit to follow Jesus. You can't stay on the fence because ultimately by choosing to stay on the fence, you are choosing not to follow Jesus. You can't have it both ways. I just finished reading a really good book uh, about a, a, a very an atheist, a very militant atheist who just passed away a couple years ago, and uh, he had cancer. And so uh, he he had been very militant in his atheism, very outspoken. But at the end of his life, he became friends with some. He, he was sick. He knew he was sick and dying, and so he became friends with some some Christians. And this one Christian in particular who wrote the book, uh, this biography about him. And what we see is that at the end of his life, he was on the fence. He was really struggling. He, 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 was, he had these atheist friends, and yet, and, and that's the world that he was in, and that's how he was known, and he had a reputation, and yet they were, him and this Christian, they were doing a study through the book of John, and he was feeling the, the pull of Jesus, and he was torn, and what is he going to do? But he knows if he embraces Christ, he loses all this other stuff, the way he's known, the way he's built his reputation. He gets rejected and probably ripped on by his old friends. And so as far as we know, that's how he died, on the fence. But on the fence still isn't following. You can't have the farm without becoming a farmer. You can't have heaven without becoming a loyal citizen of the king of heaven. And you can't be a disciple of Jesus without following him as your highest priority. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbly, acknowledging, Lord, that for those of us who have seen your glory and who have committed to follow you, that we do not do it perfectly, that there are times when we get distracted, Lord, and we take our eyes off you and we look at other things. And so we don't want to claim that we perfectly follow you. But we thank you, Lord, that when we commit to you, that you are a good father who brings us back. That you are a father who at times disciplines his children, but you're faithful and you run after us. You, you draw us back to you. And so, Lord, for those who are maybe struggling today, wondering, should they commit? And they, they doubt themselves. Lord, I pray that you would reassure them that their hope need not be in themselves and their ability to follow, but in your ability to lead. That you will keep them, that you will hold on to them if they will simply commit themselves to you. Seeing your glory, seeing your goodness, desiring, seeing their own neediness and desiring to follow that you will then take them and that none of those who belong to you will ever, ever fall, slip through your fingers. That You have hold of them. And I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling, who are on the fence, that they would commit today in trusting their lives to you because they won't regret it. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me today for the benediction?
May the God who gives endurance and encouragements give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. 